This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome everybody. As you are probably going to notice, this guy right here is not with us tonight. He is in Montana celebrating his wife's 40th birthday. So wishing them a great time since he is with his lovely and talented and hardworking and better half. I'm sure they're going to be having a great time. But with that, we're going to jump into the charts. I've got all of Jeb's stuff, so you won't have to worry about missing out on that. And a lot of interesting data, kind of a, a recap of what we did on the podcast this last week on the Educated Home Buyer, and a look forward to what we're going to be covering this week. I think it's interesting, informative. So let's jump in here. Let me pull up the slides. So we did not get Jeb's data before he traveled there. So I don't have the Orange County and Huntington Beach stuff, but as you can see there, most available inventory since New Year's, but that's to be expected. If you look at that trend over the last several years, the trend, even when we had higher available inventory, definitely starts going up and increasing a little bit this time of year. And that's what we're seeing. New listings, the interesting thing here, we never really saw them go up from May all the way through here in August. They're pretty flat and they haven't been decreasing as much as they have previously. So interesting, something to watch, definitely a different market. We're going to go to, into some of the data of why that is, why that may be, and why that is, is happening right now. So inventory, I did a little something different here that whenever I watch Jeb go through these charts, this always occurs to me. That pink line there is, is the trend. So we are below that long-term trend, but that goes back to say 2015. We have seen less and less inventory. So every year we get a peak, but the peak is lower and lower every year. It went super low during the pandemic. It's recovered a little bit, but we are still well below what a normal market looks like. So here we've got the weekly inventory change. So inventory rose 4,000 units. It's like 1%, less than 1%, not a significant amount. Same week last year, inventory rose from 550 to 551. So almost identical to last year. We saw that big increase in inventory last year. Haven't seen much movement over the last year. Inventory for the bottom, bottom for 2022 was 240. Inventory peak for 23 was 496. So essentially where we are this week. And again, the context is always important. In 2015, we had 1,211,000. So two and a half times what we have right now. So with that, 365,000 pending sales, 63,000 new sales pending this week, 10% fewer than last year. That's a theme we're going to talk about tonight and kind of go through some of these numbers in that we are in a housing recession. We're going to talk about a real recession, an economic recession, but the housing industry, especially existing homes, not necessarily new homes, but existing homes are definitely in a recession. And that's what we're looking at and seeing right there. Here, I also wanted to draw some of these trend lines in here and again show to you median home list prices don't love median values but they are valuable we're tracking the same thing over time they can change as a market gets tight and more expensive you can see a mix of sales shift to the lower end without really telling you anything about the sale or the value of any actual home but looking at this always want to point out that we're seeing a trend of higher 
peaks on those median list prices. So you see the the trough also increases the the bottom that you hit every year. So last year we had a higher high as on that median than we would have expected because people were trying to squeeze through the exit door as it was closing as interest rates were shooting up. But the important thing to look at here is to not say, "Hey, where where are we in July or where are we in January?" We know that in January we're going to hit that low level for the year and we know somewhere around July we're going to hit the peak for the year. So in looking at that, median prices of new homes, again, this doesn't tell us a whole heck of a lot, been chopping around, but pending sale price, 378. And we can see here that we saw this dip last year when we had that big, big spike in interest rates in 2022 that came down in terms of homes under contract as people shifted to cheaper homes to offset the increase in mortgage rates. Properties with price reductions, pretty much in trend with what we've seen. So not much to see there. This one here, Jeb snuck in and I'm not seeing the top of it. So these are the five highest effective property tax rates on a median valued home in 2022. So this tells you where you are in the country where you're likely paying the highest in taxes. This week's episode Tuesday posted on the Educated Homebuyer podcast was talking about what you need to consider if you're going to move or think about moving to a lower cost of living area. And we went heavy on the property taxes here. So Jeb threw this one in here for us. Detroit, very high. Newark, New Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, and then Portland, Oregon. That's, that one's kind of surprising. I have a client looking in that area and hadn't noticed tax rates that high. So it also information here, the average effective tax rate for median value homes was 1.32% in 2022. For us in California, we generally estimate at one and a quarter. California property tax rate is 1%, but every municipality votes in school bonds, roads, uh, all sorts of things. Generally comes out to one and a quarter. They can be higher, they can be lower. And depending on how your part of the country does it, it can be fairly simple or fairly difficult to figure out exactly what your, your tax situation is gonna look like. So again, my slides here are not working here. What this shows is existing home sales. So we had existing home sales came out yesterday down 2.2% oh, month over month, down 16.6% year over year. So that is the housing recession that we're talking about. We're not seeing home values spike. We're not seeing home values really decrease, but we are seeing sales volume decrease as we have less qualified and able and willing buyers. And we also have less sellers interested in selling. So supply demand balance stays the same, but we continue to see existing homes, home sales decrease. So interesting thing here today, we got new home sales and new home sales up 4.4% month over month, up 31.5% year over year. The big conversation this time last year was, oh, these home builders are in trouble. We have the charts. They're looking, saying, oh my God, they built too many homes. They have too many homes for sale. They're going to end up with all this inventory. They're going to have to cut prices. Well, the reality, we're going to look at a couple of additional slides here. This is just a different look at those numbers. So this is existing home sales. So 2022, we saw they went down, 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 down through the year as interest rates went up. Well, this year we have kind of stayed level. People have just adjusted. This is what interest rates are. We've adjusted at a new lower level. But when we look at new home sales, what happened? Last year went down, kind of leveled off, increased towards the end of the year. But that increase kind of ran right through here of 2023 that it keeps increasing. Going up. Who is this guy? Interloper. We have an interloper in the in the chat. Where are you at, my friend? Is your is your is your internet connection a little off there in the big sky country? It's all good. How are I you guys? Like I'm jealous. That's what, and I'm sure everyone watching is jealous too. What, what lake do we have there in the background? We don't, we just have a pond. 
here. I'll, I'll switch this thing around if I can. I don't know if I can. We're not going to do that. That's there. a twenty a twenty five thousand square foot estate that Jeb rented for he, he and his wife to enjoy the weekend. That's it for her birthday. Just the two of them. Exactly. I was just checking in. Looks like you got it. You're holding it down, buddy. We're we're trying. Do you want to, do you want to participate or are you just saying hi to everybody? I'm just saying hi. My wife's over there with a with an alcoholic beverage, and I'm gonna go uh, join. All right. She's well, tell her, tell her to look in the chat. She has received uh, several birthday greetings, and I'm sure we will get many more birthday greetings from the uh, regular viewers here. All right, my friend. Adios. See ya. See ya. Unexpected. Sorry, guys. I took I took me out of the stream when I took Jeb out of the stream. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. So the seasonal fall off in demand that is typically seen in August from July as the summer home selling season wind down has so far been much smaller than typically experienced. Now, this is going to be very, very interesting. I didn't pull in the data and the slide, but saw information that applications, at least as measured by Optimal Blue, not by the MBA's information, but applications were down 20% week over week when we saw this big recent spike in interest rates. It will be interesting to see how that goes. So wanted to point this out, wasn't sure exactly where in the story that we're telling with the slides, this would make sense for you guys. This chart, if you look, you see the red and the pink heavy. This is basically showing it's a housing market heat map showing what home prices have done globally. And I wanted to point out that Japan's sort of an outlier. They're up four and a half percent over the last 12 months. The U.S. basically flat, down 0.3%. But let's look at the rest of the world. U.K. down three and a half. Australia down 4.8. Canada down 8.7. New Zealand down 10%. Germany down 11. Sweden down 12.7%. And you probably are going, why? What the heck's going on? We do have a global economy. Interest rates are up everywhere. Things are very similar. Well, all of those people are in countries that don't have 30-year fixed rate mortgages. So homeowners... Many of them were sitting there going, hey, I paid a good price for my home. I can afford my mortgage. And they've watched their mortgage spike up three, four, five percent over the last 18 months. And it's made it unaffordable. So they are experiencing forced sales from unaffordability by current homeowners that we do not have here in the United States. So it's an interesting thing to look at and, and bear in mind. We've shown this one before. Jeb pulls it up every six months or so, but thought it was worth showing with those new home sales. We've got a little bit of a bump from 10 to about 12, 13% of homes in that sub $300,000 price range. So builders are trying to adjust to this new market by bringing some affordable supply to market, but not much of it. But you can see that we are seeing an increase in, in the next seg segment up there that's 300 to 399 and the next one of 400 to 499, seeing the biggest increases there. So May from the new home sales have some data there. So this right here, wanted to point out, why is that? Why do we see that? You guys are very aware of your inflation, what you see at the grocery store, what you see at the gas pump, what you see in all of your bills. This is producer price index by commodity inputs to industries, net inputs to residential construction goods. So this is what builders, experience to build that home. So you can see here at the right side of the chart, it's flattened out, it's leveled off. That's good, even come down slightly, but that was a pretty big spike during the pandemic. We went from this index value here at about 220 up over 320. That's about a 35% increase in the cost to build a home. So you've seen, if you've seen the financial releases, their stocks are doing well, their profitability is good. They are weathering the storm pretty well, but that was a pretty big thing for them to deal with. This one I thought was incredibly important for all of you guys to watch. We hear regularly, 
this can't happen. This can't be home prices are unaffordable. No one can afford homes. So in looking at this, the housing affordability index shows you the latest. It shows you the 10 year average pre pre COVID and then the pre global financial crisis peak. So we're at 23 right now, 23% of disposable income on that housing affordability index. It was 14 for the 10 years pre COVID 26 pre GFC. But what you want to look at there is we're at 23, Germany's at 34, New Zealand's at 56, Australia at 45, UK at 31, Korea 39. Everywhere around the world is dealing with much lower affordability than what we have in the US. If you're having a hard time qualifying and affording a home, that's cold comfort. It's not I don't expect anyone to go, "Hey, that's awesome. It's more affordable for me than it would be if I was in Korea." Not necessarily the point here, other than to say there are the majority of the world, in addition to their adjustable rates, are dealing with less affordability. The other thing that's super important here, look at that top line for the U.S., adjustment required to return to pre-COVID average affordability. So we talk about what three things go into that, the home price, your income, and mortgage rates. So to get back to that level, absent any other changes, we need a 69% increase in income or home prices could come down 41% or mortgage rates could drop 4.3%. I think we're gonna see a little bit of increase to income. We're gonna see a little bit of a drop from mortgage rates and we're gonna see this affordability remain elevated. So highlighted here, the author of the, of the article has really said, the conclusion seems to be that the 2010s were a uniquely golden opportunity to buy a home and even more so for those that refinance. We've talked about this a million times, how I was screaming from the mountaintops to anyone in 2010, 2011, please buy a home. It's cheaper to buy than it would be to build a new home. That doesn't make sense when you can buy an existing home for less than what it costs to build it. And those people that did that got in at a 5% interest rate, a 4.5% interest rate, and probably rode that down sub 3%. Look at this, the most anticipated recession ever. Probability of recession, according to the Fed survey professional forecasters. We've never seen it this high. 45% predicting a recession. We're going to look at some data why everyone's saying no landing or worst case soft landing still think they're wrong. Don't know when we will see this recession come, but it is likely to, to come. So this shows you federal receipts, annual percentage change versus nominal GDP. So receipts are way down, way down. So GDP will follow that down. That is going to be your recession when you have two consecutive quarters of negative growth. The reason why they didn't call that when we saw that at the beginning of 2022 is that we didn't have a job loss recession. So the, the board that makes the call on this says that wasn't a recession. This shows you economic output composite index versus the leading economic indicators for the next six months. You can see both of those are at exceptionally low levels, levels that every time we've hit them before, if you can see the gray bars there, have led to a recession. Looking at real GDP annual growth rate, we're sitting here estimated at 2.22. We talked about a little bit, the Atlanta Fed does a now cast and their number is showing 5.8% expected for the third quarter. That's their initial preliminary reading. It usually drops two to 3% through the month, but it's looking hot. And the Fed is looking at that going, hey, we've been tightening, 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 and yet still here we are, this is too much growth. That's not likely to be the case. Federal expenditures, we look here, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the things that was named in an incredibly interestingly ironic way, uh, that's the spending that's holding some of the inflation into the economy as things cool down. But spending increasing and then showing that real GDP has been trending down.
which uh, again leads to economic slowdown. We talked last week, I believe that uh, one of our friends online who's been talking about housing crashes for the last 50 years pointed out this big dip in M2 and how every time we've seen a contraction in M2 money supply that large in a 12 month period, it has led not to a recession, but to a depression. This is the chart that kind of puts that in context. We are right kind of back to trend on trend growth to M2. It will be interesting to see what happens. If we go below trend, it will be bad for the economy. Another signal that says there is probably turbulent times ahead. Wanted to go through this here showing what's happening with shelter cost. We talk about how in all of the inflation measures that we're seeing, the thing that is keeping those CPI, PCE high is we still have these really high year over year measures, but all of the more real time looks at this saying that housing in terms of owner's equivalent rent, which tracks closely to home prices, home prices down about 0.18% but the CPI owner's equivalent rent is up 7.7%. You may be saying, what does owner's equivalent rent have to do with home prices? They just track very closely. When people's homes are more valuable, they think they will rent for. When they drop, they think they will rent for less. Rents here, we have three measures that say it's up 0.88% and CPI is capturing it at 8%. So this just to show you here, these are the components that go into CPI. Housing, 44%, shelter, 34%. Those measures are what is keeping us elevated here. I'm not saying there's no other inflation in the economy, but that is absolutely what is keeping us at those high levels. If you take out the, the shelter, or if you look at the trend here, the trend is absolutely coming down. So in terms of year-over-year -year CPI and year-over-year -year CPI X shelter, you see CPI is up still over 3%, but we're well under 2% when you take shelter out. We're not saying you can take shelter out. Shelter is a reality. But what we're saying is the numbers, when they catch up over the next 6 to 12 months, are likely to tell us that inflation is at a much lower level. This shows you monthly CPI and monthly CPI X shelter just in terms of the, the monthly rate of change of where we're at. We are trending down into that 0% month over month. Year-over-year -year PCI prices and CPI, again, telling us the same story. So looking at all these measures of inflation, unless we get a spike in rents or a spike in home prices, which due to low affordability is unlikely, we're going to see those numbers continue to moderate. Wanted to throw this one in here near a record low. This is the China 10-year yield. So we live in a global economy. These economies are interconnected. China is one of the three big ones. You've got the European Union, you've got the US, you've got China. Their economy is sputtering. Their 10-year yields have been on a consistent downtrend here. So looking at that, it would be unrealistic to think that that's not coming to us at some point. I want to just throw in here, this was an article the Wall Street Journal did last weekend, China's 40-year boom is over. What comes next? This shows some of the things that we're experiencing here. Their population is aging just like ours, which is disinflationary or outright deflationary. Total factory productivity, you're seeing they're getting little to no product productivity growth out of their factories. And then China's corporation average return on assets, both state owned and privately owned going down. So that will be a drag on the global economy and it's impacting things. So what does it mean for us here? Interest rates, all that fun stuff. We like to show this chart. It moves every week because the support and resistance levels are different. 
So we had talked about this 415 level would be nice to get under it. If we hit there, 427 was important and it was really critical that we stay under 434. We fought that 433, 434 level for a couple of days, which you can see here. This is what we've looked at the five trading days since we were here last week. So Thursday was relatively flat, Friday up. Actually, this is, that's the opposite. These are bond prices. When prices go up, you wanna see this blue shading increase because that means prices are going up, yields are going down. So Thursday was a little better, Friday a little better, Monday bad, Tuesday bad, and we got a big recovery here. We're still about a half percent worse over the last 60 days, but if we can stay below 434, it's a positive sign that maybe we have seen the worst of it. What does that mean? You guys see numbers all the time. We say, please ignore Freddie Mac. Their numbers will be out tomorrow, but they're a week out of date when they're released. The best numbers here will be either look at Mortgage News Daily, saying 7.36 on a 30-year fixed FHA, just under 7%, and we should be able to get that a little bit lower than that. But that's a good look at what you would be seeing if you were out in the market. So a lot of slides. We got through them in only 20 minutes, and we are now ready for the fun part of the show. There we go. We got me back. So let me scroll back here and just see where we are in terms of the questions. An, an interesting one here. Clip some easy. A regular viewer here says multiple questions. Number one, credit lines to small and medium businesses are shrinking due to interest rate hike. What does that do to the luxury home market whose owners are these same businesses? I, I, different types of businesses rely on those types of credit lines very differently. If you have a lot of inventory, you're going to rely on that type of stuff. If you're a services business, if you're a lawyer, if you're a surgeon, those things don't make much of a difference. So would be super hard for us to say from, from that end. You followed up here. Number two, do you think these events will create a big housing market downside? One, return to office by September now being announced by so many companies. Student loan payment starting in September and the Fed stopping the purchase of MBSs and start selling them. The Fed could cause major problems. They do not want to. It is a tool at their disposal. If their hikes were not having enough impact, they could do quantitative tightening and sell as much or as many of their MBS holdings and treasury holdings as they want to. They do not want that. They are nearing the impact that they want, but they absolutely could. Student loan payments, you've heard us say here before, I do not think they're going to have a big impact because if you've seen the, the reaction, what the government is, is planning on doing is making the income-based repayments even a smaller portion of disposable income and making forgiveness more eligible, eligible forgiveness available to more eligible borrowers. So from that perspective, I don't think the people who were in a position to be able to buy homes are going to be limited by their student loans coming back online. We have sort of a momentum here for trying to make student loans as little an issue as possible. It's, it's not nearly as easy as it should be. Where I will go on record is saying I help a lot of people who have student loans. The, the guidelines between qualifying for a mortgage with student loans are greatly misunderstood. A lot of people get themselves painted into a corner with a lender that doesn't know them. But because I watch this closely, I, I can see I, I don't even want the government to talk about forgiveness or expanding income-based repayment until we figure out how to stop the increases in education costs and making sure there's an outcome. You shouldn't be able to take out $150,000 in student loans for a degree that isn't gonna make you a six-figure income. We have ability to repay 
on mortgages. I have to show that you have an income that will allow you to repay the mortgage for the home that you want to buy. But you can go borrow as much as you want from the government to get a degree who will never give you the ability to repay that. So I would love to see some reform there. Then we can talk about what we can do to get people relief from the student loans they have. Wasn't really your question, but I answered it anyways. So Kim, will we see interest rates rise next month when the feds meet? The odds are against it right now, at least in the fed funds futures, it's increasing. It was pretty much kind of off the table per fed funds futures. We've been seeing data and information over the last two, three weeks that I think the odds are up to about a 40% chance before the end of the year, one of the remaining two meetings. It certainly could happen. I think all of the data that we went through in these charts, there is a lot of negative stuff that hasn't quite bubbled up yet. And I think it is more likely to between now and the end of the year. The big thing we saw today, some revisions to the previous employment reports. So the problem is when an employment report comes out really hot or hotter than the Fed wants to see it, and that's probably the number one thing that they're looking at, the market trades off of that. No one goes back and looks at a revision and says, oh, it wasn't really hot. We shouldn't have traded interest rates up higher. They just move on and they wait for, for new data. So the best thing that could happen to prevent that from happening is we will get in September, we'll get the August jobs report before the Fed meets. If that shows some moderating employment situation, so higher unemployment rates, less job creation, that might be what keeps them from acting. But either way, remember, that that is not what moves interest rates. Fed actions do not move interest rates other than if the market, traders in the bond markets, believe that the Fed has lost control of inflation and they need to push rates higher to get a greater yield to give a real return above and beyond what inflation yields over time. So with that, let's get through all this stuff. Gerald, I wish Jeb was still here. Gerald, Gerald wanted to know if Jeb was at Sancho's. If Sancho has that nice of an estate up in Montana, I wanna, I wanna go and, and start a, a Sancho's franchise. So we had Karen actually piped in here and said, Portland, Multnomah County has the highest property tax rates in the Portland metro area. I lived in Lake Oswego and my property taxes were not as high. Probably the reason for the client that I'm dealing with, they were not looking in, in Multnomah and we weren't seeing incredibly high taxes. So thanks for, for chiming in with that information. Wesley, if Jeb is still watching him, we'll let him know that you are jealous as well. I think what we should all do is go grab a plane and just crash their party for the 40th. I think that would be our best party there, our best plan, I should say. So let's get back to these questions. Okay. So SNN Media, another regular viewer here, says, question, Fed dropped the interest rate and property values grew by 20% in the U.S. Afterwards, property taxes increased in many states. Big revenue generation for the government was this all planned. I don't think so. I, I think you're giving the government too much credit. You're just literally giving them them too much credit because right now with interest rates really high, you're going to see sales of, of many things, you know, transfer tra taxes on real estate, sales taxes on vehicles, equipment, things that bring in a lot of revenue are going to be way down. So I don't think they've modeled this all out to that degree, but you may be onto something. I wouldn't say you're wrong, but I, I just don't think that they think this through. I don't think that the Fed thought through what they were doing and how it was going to impact housing. We needed really low interest rates for about six months, if that, and it should have been tapering off at the end of the six months. Instead, we got it for almost 24 months. And what happened is everyone was able to, that owned a home, was able to refinance at a much lower rate. 
we pulled demand forward from the future of people who had been buying here in 2023, 2024, 2025, and they bought back in 2021 and 2022. So we have less demand, we have less affordability, home prices are higher, and the Fed is on record are saying they didn't anticipate that the ultra low interest rates that were made available during the pandemic would tie people into their homes when rates inevitably increased. Like that's mind boggling that PhD economists didn't think that they were locking people into homes. And maybe we go back to that slide that we looked at earlier here on the show to say everywhere else in the world, this has never occurred because they have variable rates. So you can lower rates in the short run, but when that thing adjusts in one year, five years, whatever your, your readjustment period is, it's going to go to current market. You don't have this lock-in. Well, we have created a significant and real lock-in. Comment here. I think someone misunderstood the, the slide we were showing. It says under 300K is low because there isn't anything out there for th under 300K. That was actually new homes, homes that are being built by builders and offered at those prices, not just what is available. And if you're in certain markets like we are here in Southern California, there's no such thing as a $300,000 home. That is absolutely true. So looking at that... Well, Maria, Maria has a question here. So do you think areas that houses were sold over the top prices like the Bay Area, San Jose, and a lot of houses come to the market, that specific area prices will drop drastically? We've kind of always seen certain markets in the country, Southern California being one of them, but absolutely the Bay Area, more volatility in home prices there because their economies have had these booms. And when the economy does less well or becomes incredibly unaffordable, it can be prone to greater swings. If you look at the areas that are down the most, I think the Bay Area is still the tops. Austin is fighting for it. And I think Boise is, is close. But I think those are three of the top areas. And that is the reason there, because a lot of employers like Google, I think it just saw is selling another one of their buildings there and moving so that they don't have to pay such high wages. If you have employees in an area where the median home price is $1.5 million, you have to pay a pretty good wage or they're never going to be able to own a home. So a lot of that was done with sort of funny money. It was real money, but stock options, things of that sort, it wasn't real money in the sense that it came into your paycheck and you put it into a savings account and watched it. It grew quickly. Those people were able to deal with higher prices. So if the economy suffers, if jobs move out of the area, they would be more prone to more volatility. That's absolutely true. So Keisha has a good question here. Hi, Josh. My husband and I are wondering if we should pay off our condo or keep saving for a future down payment in our savings account. Our goal is to rent out our condo in the future. So it's, it's hard to make this decision in a vacuum because we can say right now interest rates are really high. When you look at that, 3.75, with depending on your your loan size and your other tax deductions if you're able to itemize it may be effectively even lower than that but you're looking at a, a three quarters percent positive return by putting money in the bank versus putting it into the condo now if rates drop we could easily be back and money in the bank gets you two and a half or three percent and you're you're negative there the thing that I don't like, the picture here looks like you guys are young, for young people, anyone under 50, anyone more than 10 to 15 years out from retirement, putting money into your home is, is putting it in a lockbox. It makes it hard to get it back out. If you need to get it back out, you have to borrow it. You have to qualify. You have to get the property to appraise. And you have to pay whatever the market interest rates are on that. I would rather see you save and invest unless you are so well over invested in your 401k and IRAs and, and just your personal savings that you don't need that. There's not a right answer. It's, it's really easy to say right now, put the money in the bank, but I don't know that rates are going to stay that high forever. And you'll see that difference. 375 is a good rate. It's not the absolute lowest rate out there, 
but do what feels right to you. I would rather see you saving aggressively, whether you end up buying another home or you're just putting that money away for retirement. Sparrow Goat with a comment here. You wonder how housing is even affordable in California. My neighbor sold their home, two houses from us for $1.2 million. It's, it's absolutely true. What I can say is I talk to people all day, every day who two years ago would have qualified for what they want and they look at it and there's just no way. Talk to a lady here this afternoon, her and her husband, their home is appreciated at 1.1 million. When they bought it, they imagined, hey, someday we'll sell this, we'll try and buy a million dollar home. Now their house is 1.1 million. To get what they want is 1.5. Even with a $500,000 down payment, that's an $8,000 monthly payment. They're just not, not here for that. And don't blame them. So what I can say is there are enough people that are, that do sign up for that, that those homes are getting two, three, four offers. Are they getting bid up with 50 offers like they were in 2020? No, but they're selling in the range of, of market value if they're priced fairly. So we have a wonderful, helpful comment here. AR says, we don't know what the hell we're talking about and we don't know what's going to happen. So we appreciate that positive input and uh, we'll take that under advisement. I would probably recommend finding a, a different show rather than wasting your time talking to people who don't know what they're talking about. So Elay also back here with another question. Does each discount point always take a quarter off the rate or can it vary from lender to lender? Is there a floor for how far down a rate can be bought? So we cover a version of this almost every week. That is a rule of thumb in a normal market with a normal rate sheet, a quarter point buy down of interest rate. You want seven and a quarter instead of seven and a half the pricing will be about one point worse. That is not consistent in the current market. Lenders are incentivizing people to buy those down. So we're seeing anywhere from a half to three quarters to get down a quarter in most cases. I have a client right now, we just bought the rate down a half percent. That would normally cost two points. It was a little over one and a quarter. So you look at that, your break evens shorten considerably and you start going, hmm, this, this may absolutely make sense for us. And you say, why are lenders doing that? Is they do not want high note rate loans on their books because they believe that sooner rather than later, interest rates are gonna go down and all of those loans are going to refinance. So the flip side of this, what we normally get, especially with a lot of our first time buyers, they've saved up enough money to buy a home. They don't have enough of their closing costs, tight market seller doesn't wanna pay closing costs for them. So what do we have in that situation as our option is we can take a higher interest rate. And what we're seeing the flip side is normally you go up a quarter percent and you would get 1% to cover your closing costs. So a $500,000 loan, $5,000. What we're seeing in the current market is lenders don't like doing that at all. So if you have a lot of loan level price adjustments, you have a lower credit score, higher LTV, you may not be able to get any lender credit regardless of what interest rate you could or would be willing to pay. So that's, that's interesting. Now, the last piece, is there a floor to how far down a rate can be bought? Not in terms of the interest rate, but they have to be bona fide discount points. And that means that it's not going to additional lender profit, that it's actually going to buy the interest rate down. Otherwise, it goes into your points and fees calculation and you're limited in what you can pay. So most compliance department with most lender, most lenders are really conservative on this and they do put a practical cap on that. So you're not going to be able to pay four, five, six, seven points to buy a rate down, despite the fact that I'll see on rate sheets, hey, 11 points, we can get a 4.12% rate today. Even if you wanted to pay 11 points, you can't get it just because the compliance departments won't let it through. 
So we've got a really a comment here from Sage. Just saw people on Twitter saying their student loans are being forgiven. If that's the case, what you're you're seeing is the public servant loan forgiveness. I have a lot of lawyers who had a lot of student loans. I mean, three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars of student loans ran into roadblocks from lenders that did not know how to do those loans. So we did those, you know, from 2016 all the way through to today, still get a lot of those inquiries. But just in the last year, I've had three of those attorneys get more than $300,000 of student loan forgiveness. And that's because they went to work for the DA's office instead of private practice. I actually have a client who he did not take out a bunch of student loans. His family paid for his education. He's a lawyer. His wife had a bunch of student loans. So when they looked at it, he went into private practice. He makes twice as much as she does. But when they broke out the spreadsheet and penciled it all out, it made more sense for her to go make half as much at the DA's office for the first 10 years because they're going to eliminate her $300,000 of student loans. I think she's got about two more years left on that. So let's scroll through here and see what we got. This is an interesting one. If you have an eviction, how long will it stay on your record? Does the bank see it as a negative that you'll be denied? What can you do to improve qualification if you have an eviction? It really depends on how the property management handles it. If they take it to collections, if they take it to court and get a judgment against you, those things are what is going to show up on your credit report and a lender will have the ability to see. A judgment is a public record, just like a bankruptcy, short sale, foreclosure, that type of stuff. It's going to stay on your record for 10 years, not a short sale. I misspoke there. A foreclosure, a bankruptcy, a judgment. Those are all court records. They're going to stay on your credit file for 10 years. So if it goes that far, it could follow you that long. Now, a judgment, you may need to pay it off. It may mean a longer waiting period. It really can depend on the loan program and your other qualifications. So it is a negative. You want to avoid it. If it's just a collection, if it's a charge off and they didn't go all the way to court to get a judgment, maybe less of an issue, less problematic, but you definitely want to, uh, want to avoid it if at all possible and settle it if at all possible. So we actually have a super chat here. And apparently I'm dumb because clicking on the super chat doesn't get me there. Here we go. We'll get to it this way. Andrew Kuhn. Sorry I missed the start. It's absolutely okay. Jeb missed the start also, but he did pop in for a second. What are your thoughts on projected rates by NAR under 6% by second quarter of 2024? Love the show. As always, Nashville agent. So Andrew, awesome. Appreciate you watching. Appreciate that you like the news and information. We just recorded yesterday before Jeb left. We usually record on Wednesday, but we recorded next week's episode of the podcast and we're answering the question, are rates going to 8%? I say answering the question. We're examining the question. We do not have a crystal ball. We do not know. The, the figures from NAR, from the NBA, from Freddie Mac are looking spectacularly wrong right now. Now, if you go back and ask us 45 days ago before rates took the current jump, we just said, no, that's about right. You know, we did a, a mid-year forecast on the podcast back in July. And my feeling was that rates were going to grind lower throughout the rest of the year, probably end up in the low to mid sixes by the end of year. So a little bit above what any NAR thinks, but definitely tune into the podcast next week. We go through that. We go through some of the forecasts. Things can change quickly. No one expected them to spike as quickly as they did here. No one is now expecting them to drop quickly, but they can. We had the same thing happen late January, early February, where we were able to lock some clients in the high fives. No one expected it, but it came. I think we are going to see more negative news throughout the year. If we see downward revisions to em the employment data, that's really what the Fed is looking at right now. They want to make sure in inflation doesn't jump up, which again, if we see those shelter costs continue to come down, we're going to have the last couple months of the year, some really tough year over year figures and that base year effect going away. 
but we should continue to see inflation moderating, at least on the core level. Oil has stopped increasing. We had a run up, you know, from the 60s to the, the mid to high 70s, and it's somewhat moderating from that perspective. So 6% by second quarter of 2024, I could, I, I don't know about under 6%. It, it's really hard to say. The numbers that we were seeing for fourth quarter of this year, different projections of low sixes, high fives, I don't know that we're going to see it. I think most of us at this point, if we could get a 6.5% rate by by December, would be a positive for uh, for everyone. So from that perspective, let's look here. Robert Corona, is there a time limit to transfer a property title from a deceased person? Will this trigger a reassessment in taxes, even if the property goes to family? Robert, if you're still here, pipe in and tell me if you're in California, because most parts of the country, we don't have the Prop 13 protections like we do here in California. So to put it in context, back in 2020, my father passed away and my sister and I inherited his home. We were about ready to have a change going forward for California in 2021 that would have said that one of us needed to move into that property to be able to keep that tax rate. At that time, anyone, any family member could inherit that property and keep the tax rate. And I should say a, a child, a grandchild could inherit that property and keep that tax rate without it being reassessed. There's not really a time limit. It is not advisable to leave title in a deceased person's name. At some point in the future, when you want to sell that property, refinance that property, title is going to require you to provide all of the documentation needed to show the, the death of that owner and who the rightful heirs are. So the sooner you can do that and get it into the correct person's name, the better off you're going to be. And an interesting question, I would love to talk to someone that really knows about this in detail. If you waited three, four, five years and you filed and changed it to someone else's name, and that was the first that the assessor's office learned that that person had been deceased, it's possible that you could have a supplemental tax bill for what those taxes should have been during that time frame. So I don't think it's a, a super safe bet to leave it in someone's name to avoid being reassessed. Okay. And Robert says, yeah, California. So I think that is pretty accurate of, of what you're looking at. Rolling back up here through the questions, I may have missed a few, but if you have them, throw them up here. We're going about 545 now. So I plan on staying here till six. I'll actually, without Jeb, since I'm all by my lonesome, I will stay as long as you guys want and as many questions as you guys would like to get answered tonight. But with that, it looks like we have most of them answered. So we have several people in here, you know, putting in their, their two cents. It looks like we have one listener says rates will start to fall by the end of the year and into 2024. Wesley chimes in, rates are definitely not falling this year. So it would be, it's just, it, it's going to be interesting. Um, I still believe we are going to get a recession. Don't know how long or how hard or how deep, but the Fed is not going to come off of these rates easily and not until we start seeing changes to those employment figures. So the employment figures have not been exceptionally hot, but when you're already at three and a half percent unemployment, which is pretty much a record low, it doesn't take much for the Fed to say, hey, with no slack in the market, employers are going to have to pay, despite the fact that we haven't seen that data, the, the wage growth or wage inflation has not been there that they are worried is going to come from that ultra low employment. But until that comes up and corrects, we're, we're not likely to see that change. So Smart Fox says, is there any situation in the market that drastically lowers the value of a desirable location, such as the coast of California in your lifetime? like global warming. Well, I'm glad you threw that in there because my brain would not have gone there. But 
for the most part, the, the Bay Area is desirable. And we've seen, you know, to those people would probably say drastic, you know, eight to 10, 12% over the last 12 to 18 months. They don't like that change. And that's still a very desirable area. Coastal California, urban, highly desirable, probably the fifth, sixth biggest metro market in, in the U.S. So absolutely. Global warming. So interestingly, you guys may or may not know that I live in a tsunami warning zone here in Huntington Beach. We are actually, my front door is actually below sea level. So we were interested to see what happened last weekend with the hurricane because they said potential for flooding, tsunami activity, and nothing came of it. We didn't even get rain up above the curb, which we've seen in just bad rainstorms here. Phil shows up here and says, I really hope the Fed keeps raising rates. We still have too much inflation. There's a difference between the level of prices. It would take deflation for prices to go back down. I don't think we're seeing high levels of inflation. If you look at almost everything we've seen moderate and is back under that Fed, the Fed's 2% target, what we're seeing is elevated prices that are uncomfortable for everyone. So I would absolutely agree with that. Robert has a follow-up here, says, would there be any complications if the deceased relative didn't have a trust set up correctly and we avoided probate court with a Hegstad position? It was approved by the judge already. You went way over my head, my friend. I don't even know what a Hegstad position petition is, but obviously you do. And if it was approved by the judge, I don't think it matters how the property is transferred, whether you take the trust and you show that you are filing a deed to transfer it to the correct heirs under the trust, the, the beneficiaries of the trust then transferring it into their name. If you go through probate, the court will issue the order. And it sounds like this is similar they're just issuing, the court will issue the order and it will get transferred to the appropriate place. Carl pipes up and says, the Fed won't stop until something breaks. Agree with what you said earlier, the Fed should have raised rates sooner. I mean, that's it's not even debatable at this point. They left rates too low, too long, and they're probably gonna leave rates too high, too long. I'm not saying they should be cutting right now. I'm saying we probably should have stopped three, four, five months ago, two, three cuts back and just let it play out and see what happens. But they like to do things. They like to take action and show you that they're actually making making moves in your favor, if that counts. Or Smart Fox here says, if you're married and your spouse dies, do you lose half of capital gains on your home? Does a revocable trust funnels protects that other half? This one, a little bit of a gray area for me. You would want to talk to your tax professional because my understanding, if you own with your spouse as joint tenants, and a joint tenant dies, you get a stepped up basis on their portion of it. So I don't believe you miss out on it. I believe the tax liability on the gains on their portion, if not the whole portion, go away. I believe it's just their portion. But as you can tell, I do loans. I don't do taxes. But you're going to get a stepped up basis on the other joint tenants portion at a minimum. So talk to your tax preparer and you can go through that. Andrew kindly comes back and says, for a beer. Thanks, Josh. So Jeb gave me controls of the YouTube channel but he didn't give me controls of the YouTube bank account. So I'm going to have to swipe $5 from his wallet when you get back so I can go get an 805. We have a couple people chimed in with some advice. Robert Corona, the attorney handling the transfer of dad's property to me when he passed, dropped the ball on Contra Costa County did reassess, took a year to fix. County does have deadlines. I think that is good and accurate information. I have a client who we had a sticky situation. His wife passed. And he and her, she and he, however that goes, owned. And for whatever reason, they put his son on title with them. 
So we refinanced. The son had moved on and bought his own home. So we had to take the son off, which is in her family, shouldn't have been a reassessment. And we had a death of a joint tenant and should have been should not have been reassessed. The title company filled out the paperwork incorrectly, actually didn't fill it out at all. There's a preliminary change of ownership report here in California that gets goes with the deed. So it goes to the assessor's office that tells him who are is this transfer from and to and is it subject to any exemptions that would keep you from getting reassessed. This didn't happen and we were able to unwind it, but it was a massive pain in the butt and he ended up paying a bunch of extra taxes in the interim. So you really can't stress strongly enough to pay very close attention when you are filing the deeds to get the property titled in the right person's name that you're filling out the preliminary change of ownership correctly. And I don't think delaying it is gonna be in your best interest in any way, shape or form. So Sparrow Goat had said Prop 19 in California might help. So Prop 19 is the one that I was talking about. And they get passed in 2020, went into effect in 2021. The good part about it, if you're over 55, you can take your Prop 13 tax base with you to a new property anywhere else in California. Before you had to move to participating county, you could only do it one time. Now you can do it 500 times if you want to. But to offset that loss of revenue, what they did is to be able to have the parent-child transfer exemption that child or grandchild has to move into the property as their primary residence if they're just going to keep it as a rental like my sister and i did in 2020 you are no longer able to to avoid the the reassessment snn media back with another one inflation deflation stagflation what is of the three so again i'm going to defer and say please watch next week's episode we went into stagflation what it is why it's unlikely to occur we've seen inflation we've seen monster inflation so think in terms of this you guys have all heard the simplest definition too many dollars chasing too few goods well what did our government do in response to COVID? they handed everyone extra money and even if they didn't hand you extra money if you kept your job you got to stay at home locked up or you couldn't spend money and you still received your income so everyone accumulated excess savings that excess savings is supposed to run out by the Fed's calculations by the end of September at the current pace of spending for U.S. households. We talked about credit card debt going up, but spending that excess savings is absolutely occurring as well. And by the end of, of September should be gone. So we shouldn't have too many dollars and we no longer really have too few goods. Most of the COVID bottlenecks, supply chain issues are worked through. There are still some things that are difficult to find and get throughout the world, but we shouldn't have too many dollars and we shouldn't have it chasing too few goods that should tell us that inflation is behind us. On top of that, we have the big break of the higher financing costs, break B-R-A-K-E of the Fed charging so much in, in interest on, on the things that they do control and the bond market taking care of it for other things such as your housing. So Deflation is a tough one. Deflation is actually outright decreases in home prices. There are deflationary trends that will lead to disinflation. We always harp on on the show here. An aging population is deflationary in that you have a smaller productive population, smaller workforce, lower rates of productivity. Technology is deflationary. This is just one sort of narrow piece of it. But the example I like to use, I look at my cell phone. My cell phone is probably 100 times more powerful than the laptop my dad bought me when I graduated from college in 1995. That laptop cost almost $4,000. My phone cost $899. So technology of all sorts gets more powerful and cheaper. So 
even if the price tag isn't less, you're getting more for your dollar. Same thing with cars. Cars are much more expensive. If you go buy an entry-level car today, it's almost $30,000. In 1972, it was $1,900, but there's no comparison between those two products. So all of those things go to say, I still believe that the future is disinflationary. I don't know that we see outright deflation. We're going to have low growth. All of the things that tell us we're going to have low growth. We've shown here on the show before that 88% of government spending currently goes to non-discretionary items, whether it's defense, social security, Medicare, whatever it may be. They don't have a choice. It's already been committed to. They have to spend that money. It means 12% can be allocated to things that might be productive in terms of growing our economy. With interest rates higher now, the cost of the U.S. debt being higher, there's even less money to allocate to productive activities, so it will decrease growth over time. A wild card in there, we talked earlier in the show, the Inflationary, the Inflation Reduction Act actually allocated a lot of government resources towards things that will be productive. I don't believe they will give a dollar for dollar increase in productivity, but it could stimulate growth a little bit above trend over the long haul. So the fun part is time will tell. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have a monopoly of knowledge. We say here every week, I read a lot of really smart people who know this better than I do. And there are smart people on both sides of that equation that have different feelings about it. And you sit and go, okay, well, what, what does that tell me then about where where the market goes from here what happens i'm much more comfortable saying out three to five years that i think rates are going to be significantly lower than they are right now and we'll have some disinflation and things will will be back more to what we saw from say 2010 to 2018 but in the short run we still have lots of things to work through and lots of aberrations in the market so hopefully that was helpful we have about five minutes left here if you guys have questions i will stick around as long as you keep throwing good questions out here so if you have one get it in there but enough time travel enough time travel if you have you can do time travel there's never enough you go back and you make billions with with time travel i like that one what have supply costs and labor costs for kitchen bathroom and remodels decreased since the pandemic like you said wishful thinking like we talked about inflation is a rate of change it's not a price level price levels are still much higher than what they were for those of you who are here every week you know from 2008 to 2012 i flipped homes and i look back and i go it's mind-boggling how cheap we could get things then. And part of the reason here, and part of the reason why construction costs are still so high is that the people who were still in the business and wanting construction jobs at that time were very hungry for business and they would give you very aggressive bids. Many of them said, this sucks. I don't want to work for that little money. And they left the industry and they have not come back. So there are less people in the construction trades and there's plenty of work for them, even though the economy has slowed. So Jeb and I are looking at a couple of homes, analyzing deals that we would like to flip right now that need a lot of work. And just looking at the things, I can tell you those costs are still high. I do believe you can get them better than you could a year ago, or a lot better than two years ago, but those prices are going to be elevated relative to what you would, would hope they would be or think that they should be. Elay has another question here. What are your thoughts on new construction spec homes being a good investment in the current market if the buyer can get a buy down and price drop? What's the definition of a good investment? Is it going to give you a huge amount of appreciation in the future? Is it going to give you cash flow? And cash flow, 
you know, if you put 100% down on a home and you don't finance it, it's going to give you cash flow, but you traded that chunk of money for that future cash flow. So it's all relative. What's my cash on cash return? How much money did I need to invest? What does it return to me monthly? We don't feed alligators. You know, Michael Zuber, one of our friends who was a guest on the podcast earlier this year, wrote a book, One Rental at a Time. His first and foremost rule of investing is we don't buy alligators. If you have to feed it every month, you don't do it. So how big of a down payment do you have to put down to make that thing cash flow? And what else could you do with that money? Where else could you invest it? So I just told you, Jeb and I are actively aggressively looking for homes in Southern California. I don't know that any of those are holds. Because from a cash flow perspective, even though we'll have equity in them, I would rather ring the cash register, move that on to an end user who wants a freshly rehabbed, beautiful home, and maybe you know save up some of those assets uh, on a few of them. If we had two or three that we were selling at one time, we could do an exchange into a property with a bigger down payment that might make sense. I, I don't think the buy downs make much sense. And you saw builders are, are not in most areas are not having to drop prices. They've done a very good job of controlling prices by controlling how much inventory they bring to the market. But I don't think the type of home that you're buying really dictates or determines your analysis. You want to look back, what's my cash on cash return? What are my beliefs and prospects for future appreciation? I think anyone buying a home today, 20 years from now, will be happy that they did it. Will they look back and say, that was my best investment and best allocation of those funds for an investment over the first five to 10 years of it? I don't know that that's the case, but you got to go through it and run the numbers yourself. So Matt has a good one here. What options are there for taking cash out of a rental property without refinancing? Same as, as a primary homeowner, you're looking at a, some type of a second mortgage. So a fixed second or a HELOC, it's going to be more restrictive on the debt to income ratio. It's going to be a higher interest rate. So again, if you have a rental and you want it to cash flow and you want to not have to feed it every month, but you need to benefit for, by accessing some of your equity and appreciation from the last few years, it can be hard. And that I'm, I'm glad that you actually remembered that or asked that because it triggered me here that I was supposed to be running this wonderful banner here. So appreciate you all here. We've had, you know, a lot of you here, a lot of really good questions. I appreciate you guys staying, even though Jeb wasn't here. Appreciate Jeb letting us borrow the platform and keep things moving forward while he's not here. But if you need a realtor anywhere in the country, Jeb can get you connected. He has a large network through his coaching and networking and referral program. I can vouch for those realtors. I've worked with many of them throughout California, throughout the West Coast. He's going to connect you with the pro. I always say that at least 80% of realtors and 80% of mortgage people are worthless. You want to avoid them. The good news is we got plenty of realtors. We got plenty of mortgage people. So you should be able to find one of those top 20%. So if you don't have someone that you've worked with in the past that a friend or family member can heavily vouch for, reach out. Jeb will get you connected. If it's on the mortgage side, use that same form there. He'll get you connected with someone. And if you're on the West Coast, I've got about six or seven states that I service directly that you'll get routed back to me. If you have any questions, reach out directly. You can reach out at info at the Educated Home Buyer. If you just have a question, we can get back to you and get those questions answered for you. So looking at this one, Kyle in Pennsylvania says, if you could choose would you want real estate to go up in price, down in price, or stay the same over time? Careful what you wish for. If anything just continually goes down in price, you're not going to want to own it. There's no return. So when we look at going back to that in inflation, deflation question, people are really keen to say inflation sucks. Give me some deflation. 
deflation is much worse and a much bigger problem for the government. Because if instead of prices going up 2% a year, you knew prices were going to go down 2% a year, you would delay all of your major purchases as long as possible, knowing that your house, your car, your college education, whatever you need is going to be cheaper in the future. So you have an economy shrinking and shrinking and shrinking as people are holding out for lower and lower prices. That is why the Fed doesn't set their inflation target at 0%. They set it at 2%. They want there to be a little incentive for you to act today without it being so egregious that it's going to, to get aggressively out of hand. So we have policies in the U.S. that have led home price appreciation to greatly outpace overall inflation over the last 40, 50, 60 years. We've covered it on the show. We've covered it on the podcast. In the short run, we can see mean reversion through a number of things interest rates can come down. So like, again, the crash people who say home prices are record levels of unaffordability. There are record levels of home price to incomes. Those things can all be true. And we can see mean reversion in many different ways. Again, slowly over time, wages increase four to 6% a year. In five years, wages are up 20%. Interest rates recede. I'm on record. I've told you guys tonight, I don't know if it's one year, it's three years. I do expect much lower interest rates than seven and a half percent. Nowhere near 3% barring another catastrophe where the government has to intervene and do crazy things. But a 5% interest rate, four or five years down the line with 20% higher incomes means that home prices are going to stay at a similar level or increase slightly. So I don't think we're going to see massive appreciation in the near term future. I don't think we're going to see depreciation. So you're asking, what would I choose? If real estate just went down in price permanently, I would be disinterested. It wouldn't be something that I would want to own. And I don't think most of you would either. And if it stayed flat, I think everyone would say, well, I want to own a home because I prefer that. We've seen 65% of Americans over time want to own a home. And that's true even back in the 40s and 50s before we saw the appreciation that we saw from the 70s on forward. So I think most people would choose to own a home, but it just, it would be very different. It would be uninteresting. So I don't, I don't like any of those. So Praxia is co-signing my statement before, but they, they went wider than I did. I said, realtors and mortgage people, I, I could not agree more on that 80% rule. Most suck. Actually, I thought they said most people suck, but they just said most suck. We have very low barriers to entry in both real estate and mortgage. If you look at the number of homes that are sold throughout the country, the number of homes that are financed throughout the country, we have far more realtors and lenders than we need. It would it would make things better in many different ways if, if we had less, but just don't really see that happening. So a lot of price questions here. So Nickel Six Deuce, the 562 says, do you see homes in Lakewood, California market going down by $50,000 this fall? Absolutely do not. Go back about two weeks ago. I think Jeb told the story here at the beginning of the show. He had a listing here in Lakewood and ended up selling for about $50,000 more than he thought it would. And that was the one that had 18, 19, 20 offers on it. It's a desirable market. It's still a more affordable market of an area that has better school districts, lower crime, nice parks, that type of stuff. It's a desirable area. I believe if I remember correctly, that is Wesley's homeland there in Lakewood. It's a nice area. I don't expect it to drop in prices. I wouldn't expect it to go up $50,000, but I would be less surprised by it going up 50,000 than I would be by, by, by it coming down. Elay, this is like 9,000th question tonight. I, I, I'm not complaining. I actually like them. So can you see a scenario in which sustained rates over 7% sparks a spike in inventory in the fall, a non-peak buying season? I do not because who is going to sell? It's forced sales. If you go back to that chart that we looked at in other parts of the world where they don't have fixed 
interest rates. You don't have a 30-year fixed, you have a variable rate and rates spike up 5% over two years. A lot of people said, I can't afford this, I have to sell it. All of the people that own those homes, they don't care that rates are 7%. We went through the chart last week, median principal and interest payment in the US is $1,400. It may be double that in California, it might be $2,800. But if you've looked at rents recently, much, much, much more expensive to rent. So people will hold on for dear life. Rates staying at that level tells us that unemployment has stayed low, that inflation has remained high. People are still in their jobs and they have those ultra low payments. So I don't think interest rates impact inventory at all, other than higher makes inventory even more depressed because people will say, I'm not going to take that job transfer. I don't care that we just had twins. We're just going to post up here longer if possible. Sparrow goat here comes back and, and sadly, this is true. A swimming pool cost 20 in 2000 cost $25,000. Now it costs over $100,000. I can vouch for a swimming pool costing $100,000. I never did one when they were 25 grand. I, I wish I did. Enough time travel back with another question. How have the dynamics of aging seniors moving to downsize or vacating because they pass away changed with regard to inventory in California? I'm going to pass on this one because we've had this on the roadmap. Jeb and I have about half of an outline for the podcast on this one. I think it's going to impact the market. I think it's at least five to seven years away, and we'll go into detail on that. I don't think it's had any impact now. I, I think what little of this comes to market is rapidly absorbed. And I say what little, we haven't seen many boomers dying. The boomers were a big generation. People are going to die at the same rate that they're going to die. It sounds crass and, and sort of cold to just say it that way, but that's not going to change over time. If anything, people are going to live longer. The reason why we're going to have more of these is we have more boomers. They called the boomers because it was the baby boom generation. As we have more of them, more of them will die and it will impact. But what I can say is a lot of those properties, my dad was a baby boomer who's on the leading edge of, of that generation. And when he passed away, my sister and I kept his property. It's a very nice rental for us. I don't think either of us will ever sell it. I had a conversation with her this morning. We're like, no, it's my dad's house. I mean, it's like, it's an investment, but it's also, it's my dad's house. And every time I put that money in the bank, it feels like my dad's still giving me a $20 bill when I was 16 years old and going out on a date. So for all those reasons, I don't think that we are unique. I think a lot of people feel that way. So let's look here. Lots of people coming back with second and third question of the day. I like it. SNN Media says, can a buyer assume a seller's loan terms, including interest? If so, why is it not popular in today's interest conditions? What's the disadvantages? Most fixed rate loans do not allow it. I say most. Fannie Freddie loans are the majority of the market. They do not allow an assumption other than in very rare conditions. A divorce, one of the spouses can assume. But FHA and VA do allow it. There are some downsides to the seller. The biggest issue with it, the reason why it's not more prevalent, is most of these homes are massively appreciated. So if you bought a home for $300,000 and it's worth $500,000 now, you might have that 2.5% mortgage on it that a buyer would want, but that buyer doesn't likely have $250,000 to pay you the difference. And if they go take out a 9.5% second to come up with the difference, now we got a blend between the 2.5% and the 9.5%, it looks a lot like the 7.5% that you have in the current market. I don't ever see it really becoming a big part of the market, even though it is legal. So Sparrow Goat pipes in here, says the builders are doing creative financing. Absolutely. It's one of the ways that they have been able to do better. We've seen year-over-year -year new home sales up, year-over-year -year existing home sales down. Not only do they have available inventory, they're able to use some of their margin to then make it more manageable and more affordable for buyers. So I can tell you, you know, if you go back 
2016, 2017, very few of my clients were even considering a, a new home. It was all existing, existing, existing. And now a lot of people look at it and, and consider it. So that's interesting. Got a cosign here. Milo says, I totally get that. My mom passed away a few years ago and we'll feel the same about keeping the house. It's just, I mean, these things are emotional. I mean, I remember, you know, being 16 years old, I just got my car and I came home and my dad was a very kind and caring man. And he let my girlfriend and my friend, he said, go in his room and just wait. He'll be home shortly. I'm like, dad, that is so not cool. I'm a 16 year old boy. Do not let two girls go hang out in my room. And I came home and before I got there, they thought it was going to be funny that they heard me coming. They were going to hide in the closet and scare me. Instead, they hid in the closet and scared my dad. So my dad learned his lesson the hard way that he should not let 16 year old girls hang out in her 16, his 16 year old boy's bedroom waiting for them. But lots of, of crazy stories fights my brother and I got in, all of that fun stuff. I don't ever want that house to, to go away. We have an important guest has, has piped in. Christina, you're probably going, where in the world is Jeb? Jeb, for those of you who tuned in late, is in Montana celebrating his beautiful wife's 40th birthday. He piped in for just a second, just I think just to flex and show off how nice the place is that they're at in Montana. I think we all wish we were there with him, but appreciate you popping in and saying hello. Got a good question here. Kirsten back. I may be crazy, but I don't know that we've had any new viewers ask a question tonight. I think all of you are regulars here asking, asking questions. If, if you're new and ask your question for the first time, pipe a comment in there because I think most of you guys are, are regulars here. So I appreciate it. Kirsten says, how old does the house have to be for you to want to stay away from it? There is no such thing. I do not, the age of it, I do not care. I will say this, an email came across my desk, a wholesaler trying to sell a home. It's actually a duplex in Los Angeles for $420,000. If you know Los Angeles, it could be the worst neighborhood in Los Angeles. A duplex is worth well more than 420. Their belief is that if it were a nice duplex, it should be worth about 750. So not the best neighborhood, but looking at it, you could tell it was a 1940s build and it looked like it had been horrifically neglected. So I don't care that it was born in the forties, born in the forties, built in the forties. I care that it looked like it needed way more work than I'm interested in. So you see some of these shows online that they're you know doing these farmhouses in New England that were built in the 1700s and they were perfectly maintained or horrifically maintained. You just have to know what you're getting into and whether it is above and beyond your capacity to upgrade and improve and maintain once you once you get it. So we may be wading into dangerous territory. I didn't read the whole question, but Patrick says, any thoughts or insights about the current mass cast homelessness and drug abuse issue happening in Boston? Will more subsidy solutions affect taxpayers and current real estate market? I'm going to go on record here as saying that you, if you've been here regularly, you know, I don't like politicians. So if you're, if you're a Democrat or a Republican, don't, don't get mad at me. I don't like either one of your politicians, but the answer that they keep coming up with is we need to build houses for them. It's a housing problem. It is not a housing problem. We have in Costa Mesa, there's a, a newspaper called the Daily Pilot. It's actually owned by the LA Times. So the LA Times, a very liberal newspaper, did a 12-part article, an in-depth study about homelessness in Orange County. And they were able to tell me that it very rarely has anything to do with mental illness or drug abuse. And I don't know about any of you, have ever come across a homeless person, you know that's insane. Do I know there are people out there who are down on their luck, who are homeless through other reasons? I met a guy, super cool guy at the post office this morning. 
didn't appear to be a drug user or abuser, didn't appear to be mentally unstable, and he was homeless. So do I know they exist? Yeah, but the vast majority of them, it's sort of the, the insanity of saying, hey, if you give this person a house, they're no longer homeless, you fix their problems. An example, LA Times ran an article last weekend that during COVID, they took over a shuttered hotel and allowed homeless people to move in. And it was just a horror story. Like you, you read this article and that's again, it's a liberal newspaper sitting there telling you the truth of what happened. And everyone that lived in that neighborhood, the city of Los Angeles is wanting to now buy that hotel because they owe $1.9 million in damages to the property. It might've been $11 million. It was an absurd number, whatever it was. It was an absurd number. It was a big hotel, but all of the neighbors in the neighborhood are like, no way, you ruined our neighborhood. You cannot have that here because these people have drug problems and they have mental health issues and you can't have basically a, a flop house for them and not have good things. So I don't have the answer for it. I do not know what the answer is, but I, I do know that just creating housing for the homeless is, is not the answer. So let's look at this one. Here we go. We do have a new one. I have not, unless they've changed their name, I don't know this person. So Naughty 181 says, best tip you can give someone trying to get into a home for the first time in this current market. I don't know that I have a best tip. Let's, let's give you a, a number of tips. Listen to the podcast, go out to the educated buyer, home buyer podcast. This week's episode, it's we're already up to like 3000 views, which normally they get that in four or five days. It's got that in a day and a half, but we talked about considering moving to a lower cost of living area. Not that that's the decision that you're going to make, but I think a lot of the things we talk about that you need to plan for, consider and think of as a first time home buyer are covered in there. We've covered budgeting in there, budgeting for how to save for the money, budgeting for knowing how much you're going to need to be prepared with at closing to be able to qualify. The budgeting is huge. I just don't think most people really have any idea. A lot of the inquiries that I get from the show, from people who find me online, they just, they're completely out of touch with, with where they are relative to where the market is. And that's not, you know, it's not a criticism of them. It's just, I I don't think most people really know how much money they make, what that means net, what their taxes cost, where their money goes. So I would say really focus on budgeting and knowing your finances as well as you can and talk to a lender as early as possible. Just talked to a gentleman in Florida earlier today, I think came from the show and he can't do anything right now. And that's fine. I'm happy to have that conversation. We went through what he could do and needs to do to improve his finances and his credit before he can be in a position to buy. And that was a valuable conversation for him. I'm not saying because it was just with me, any good lender should be willing, able, and happy to have that conversation with you. So talk to a lender early before you do that, do your budgeting, know your finances, know where all your money goes, know what your credit score is, know exactly how much money you make both gross and net and what that means for you. So that would be my advice. Hopefully that was helpful. Well, Kyle's back. Kyle, Kyle, did you have the 7% the mortgage question earlier or was that someone else that threw the 7% or the elevated above 7%? So if mortgage rates were hypothetically to stay around 7% for the next 20 years, would those circumstances make you want to either save and pay cash and or pay off the mortgage fast Dave Ramsey style? I don't necessarily think it would change my opinion. And here's the reason why. I'm less concerned with absolute interest rates and more concerned with real rates. So if we stayed at 7% for the next 20 years, it tells me that inflation is at a higher level, like stagflation cannot go on that long. Um, and we don't have a recipe for it just in terms of demographics here where we would have high unemployment, low growth and high inflation. So it would tell me that in that environment, 
I would have an opportunity to get better returns than what we've had you know, the last 20, 25, 30 years with ultra low interest rates. The only way to know is to live through it, but I don't think it would change things. What I can say is starting in the 90s, I mean, I've done mortgages at first mortgages at 9%, 9.5% FHA loans back in the 90s. And people were much more interested in a 15-year loan because when you, well, I don't know if anyone is uh, is still here, but apparently StreamYard just froze up on us. So apologize, we weren't able to to get the question answered. But it looks like a hundred of you are still here. Throw throw a comment in there if you wanna wanna go through a few more questions. I'm cool. I have no idea what happened with StreamYard this time. It wasn't our wonderful internet here at the office. The uh, the old thing just just locked up on us. So if you have any questions, you want us. I appreciate you waiting. Praxia says I waited. I I appreciate that because I was staring at my computer like an idiot, not knowing what was going on with it. So go ahead, make a comment there. We actually have enough time travel with the most important thing. You can tell Josh isn't the normal host here. Don't forget the like button while we're waiting. I should have asked for that much earlier. It helps while we're early on in the stream. But again, any questions that you guys have, let me roll back here. So Kyle pipes in with investing in the S&P 500 at 10%, keeping the 3% mortgage is a slam dunk. But when your mortgage is seven to 9%, a completely different ball game. True. But I think you would see opportunities for yields higher if we had rates elevated for an extended period of time. My belief is we wouldn't see rates elevated extended for that period of time. That 40-year bull market in yields has been broken, but it hasn't been broken in real interest rates. So nominal interest rates, less inflation is still in that 40-year downtrend. So if you believe inflation gets under control, you believe that rates are going to go back to that level or back to a, a lower trend. And I think we have low growth, low inflation market, which is not, not positive. It's not, not the better thing. I think we would be in, in a little bit better position if we were looking at it other, otherwise. So Praxia says, really hoping to get some insight into this today. How much and for how long a term are new home builders buying down rates on average? They relied real heavily last year on 2-1 buy-downs. I think for the most part, they're doing permanent buy-downs now. And without boring you with the details of how that works, what they are able to do is buy a forward commitment. So if you have 100 homes that you know are coming online in December, you can buy a commitment and, and tell the market, hey, I need 120-day lock to get me through December, and I'm going to have 130-year fixed. Our average you know, FICO is going to be this. Average loan to value is this. And they're going to say, cool, we'll buy those at 98% of the value. So they know 2% of that loan amount, we're going to have to buy that down. And with 20 to 30% margins, depending on the market and the timing, they can easily absorb that. They don't like it. They would rather not do it. But if it keeps the, uh, the inventory moving, they're happy to to do it. Nickel Six Deuce says, "Can you buy a rate buy down a rate during a refi?" Absolutely. It's an interesting question. I never thought of doing a temporary buy down, a three two one, a two one, or a one zero during a refinance. But a permanent buy down, absolutely. You can always pay points to buy down to a lower interest rate. The interesting thing that if we go back and we look at the last forty years. When you're in a bull market and interest rates and rates go lower, not in a straight line, but every three to five years, we get a refinance market. It really did not pay. Your break even on paying points for a permanent buy down is out past five years, closer to six years in most situations. And with that, you were better off not doing it. So again, we have to go to our crystal balls in the current market to say, where do we think it's it's going? Kim, 
which areas in Orange County start with the lowest listing price? Super simple one there, the two lowest priced cities and they have lower price zip codes within those cities are Santa Ana and Anaheim. You'll, if you're looking for something affordable, you will be disappointed because even Santa Ana and Anaheim are expensive. You can look at Stanton and Midway City, but same thing, very small cities, they don't have a lot of housing and those prices are elevated as well. Kyle, with the question here, have you seen the increase in mortgage fraud or people lying on loans now that affordability is getting stretched? I have not, but the, the FBI keeps an eye on it. The CFPB keeps an eye on it. And when they see things popping up, they'll put out notices. So there's been a few things pop in my inbox, just say, hey, watch out for this scheme. These people are verifying income. These people are doing this reverse occupancy fraud scheme. So there's there aren't a whole lot of uh, fancy schemes out there. Nothing new under the sun. Most of the fraudsters have been doing the same things for the same time. They just put a different spin on it and try to use new technology. So from that, nothing super new and nothing that I see directly. Most of the people I talk to are folks just like you. you you come from the show, you come from online, you read an article that I wrote somewhere, you were referred by one of my realtors or a past client. And I don't know, I just think you're more likely to call up a call center or some off the wall, hole in the wall lender that you've never heard of if you're gonna try and pull some stuff like that. I don't really see it. So I wanted to say thank you to Praxia for the $4 super sticker. Again, a reminder, if you guys are watching, Jeb sells houses. If you're looking at buying a home in Orange County, he'll go a little to LA County as well. He can help you directly. If you want a referral anywhere in the country, he can get you connected with someone excellent. We have a massive network of awesome lenders that are not in the 80% turd category that can absolutely help you put you on the right track. So use the form below jebsmith.net forward slash referral, and we'll get you connected with someone who can help you. Kirsten points out, hit the likes. I don't even know where the, the likes are tracked, but we've fallen under a hundred people. So I think that the, the losing the connection and StreamYard locking up on us didn't help. We were humming along at, at 150, but with it under hundred, I think we got most of you guys' questions answered. I'll tell Jeb that you liked the more than an hour, but uh, he's pretty adamant that we're going to keep it uh, at an hour. So maybe he'll take another vacation and leave the, uh, the keys to me again. Appreciate you guys being here. Appreciate you asking the questions. Appreciate that you actually like and value the responses. If there's anything we can do for you, reach out, use that referral form. Again, have a great week and we will be back with the boss man next Wednesday. All right. Have a good one, guys. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.